I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. On today's show, model and activist Monroe Bergdorf. She shares her thoughts on Britney Spears. I don't know what it is about Britney. She's fascinating to everyone. I think that you're lying if you're not fascinated by Britney Spears then and now. The connections between social justice and nightlife. For a long time, I was around mainly white gay men who, you know, hadn't necessarily been around many black trans women and would often fetishize me or objectify me, not necessarily intentionally, but that's the effect that it would have. It's really important to be in contact with other people like yourself, that you can see yourself in, people that can relate to your lived experiences. And when it comes to getting involved in social justice, I would say always bring it back to community. Everything has to come back to community. It has to come back to not just fighting for liberation for yourself, but it has to be an inclusive manifesto for everybody. Why she finally deleted her Twitter account. I'm not willing to put myself in a house where I'm not safe. So I do feel much, much happier just having Instagram. Instagram itself is not perfect either. I was just called the N-word the other day in the comments section that stayed there for three days. It is what it is, but it's also not good enough. And we need to work together in a way where we hold these platforms accountable for their lack of action in keeping marginalized communities safe and breaking barriers in the fashion industry. I'm standing on the shoulders of giants, you know. There's been trans women after trans women and queer people after queer people that have, you know, smashed down the doors so that I can do what I do today. But then I like to think that I'm smashing down some more doors so that whoever comes after me can, you know, smash down whatever I didn't manage to do. Shut up, Evan. Shut up, Evan. Shut up, Evan. (laughs) Hey guys, what's up? It's Evan Ross Katz, and you are listening to Shut Up, Evan, a podcast about gay shit and internet culture. I'm joined once again by my producer, Matt, aka Stormageddon. Hello. And I think we're going to start off today on a little bit of a melancholic note, um, because I want to take a little bit of time today to discuss and dissect some of the recent allegations against designer, fashion designer Alexander Wang. Um, but before we do that, I want to do a little bit of a 180 and just give a quick recommendation of a film that I recently watched that was so fucking good, and it's not getting nearly enough 
press. So I want to use this opportunity to say, if you are looking for something to watch right now, Minari, uh, it is this outstanding, outstanding film about a Korean-American family that moves to Arkansas in the 1980s. It stars Steve Yeun from, most fans might know him from The Walking Dead, but he's been in a bunch of stuff. And the breakout star of the film, his name is Alan Kim. He is nine years old. Uh, calling him adorable would be an understatement. And a couple of weeks ago, he won the critic. He won a Critics' Choice Award uh, for Young New Artist for his role in the film. Um, some people might know his speech, which kind of uh, went viral because in the most, I mean, adorable is the word that's going to keep coming up, but he got really emotional during his speech. And it's, it's um, you know, you don't see a lot of like um, emotional speeches, period. Ones that I guess for me at least like really resonate. But then also like you have the complexity of like emotion tied into Zoom adds like another layer of sort of like dissonance often. And this just, the tears in his eyes and the, the gratitude, it just sort of like permeated the screen and made the Critics' Choice Awards, which to me are like, the rap, kind of like the most inside baseball of the award show circuit, uh, it kind of made that award show pop in a way that I don't think it would have otherwise. I had the great honor of interviewing Alan. Literally, it was like a half an hour after he won the award. And I was so nervous because he's a star, um, but also just like I am famously not like really like I don't I'm not a great communicator with kids okay um and I just was like okay this is gonna be interesting because I, I didn't want to like I mean hello you do this podcast with me you know sometimes I have a way of like stringing a very simple thought into like something that is just it's not even that it sounds smart so much as that it just sounds long-winded or I can trail around a question to really get to it so I was like okay go in here What's the best part of tonight? Like, you know, like, uh, what did you do? What are you going to do tomorrow morning? I wanted to keep it simple. Anyway, right. needless to say, he was just completely natural. It was such a delight. And so I want to throw to a clip of our interview real quick. What was the most fun part of getting ready tonight? Everything, mostly. What about the dressing up? Dressing up? I guess it's good, but this is not how I look in reality. <laughs> And yeah, I just want to, again, encourage people to check out Minari. It is available online right now. And uh, if you're just looking for the kind of film that stays with you and kind of, I don't know, what's that, uh, moves your your insides around? Resonates with you. <laughs> yeah. But you know, it's like, it just, it gets inside of you in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, and I will say, if, if you're just, just curious about it, um, the power of the film is encapsulated quite beautifully in the trailer. Okay. It reminded me of like that feeling I got when I watched the trailer for Chicago in 2002. I like, I really remember that trailer uh-huh. as far as being like, okay, I'm here for this movie. The Minari trailer had a similar effect on me in terms of uh, giving me a great grasp of the what this film is and sort of the world that it is going to build um have you had a chance to see it yet so i haven't but i had i hadn't heard of it and then my spouse pointed it out to me recently and i like steven yoon um i've watched some of the walking dead though not all of it and uh he's going to be a voice in the new new series by robert kirkman called invincible he's playing one of the leads it's an animated Mm. series based on one of robert kirkman's comic books kind of mirroring the superman story but kind of but still very different and more raw and so I mean, I think he's great. I've seen him in a bunch of, do a bunch of different things. And so I love when actors that I'm only sort of familiar with do dramas 
because you really get to see their range in a way that I think some other movies you don't always get to see. Not that you can't have range in a comedy or an action movie or any of that, but like dramas. Also, I'm always pleasantly surprised by the dramas that I love, which I shouldn't be because if they're good movies, like when I saw Moonlight for the first time, I had no idea what it was. And then I was absolutely floored by it. And I get the similar sense from Minari that I'm going to feel a similar way. And so, yeah, I'm excited to watch it. Once I watch it, I'll report back. Yeah. Um, and I just, again, highly recommend anyone looking for something to watch. Okay. So to get into the Alexander weighing of it all, and the reason that I wanted to bring this topic to the table, because it has been sort of a trending topic within the fashion world for a couple of months now, but there sort of was a button put on the story most recently, which we will get to. And I sort of want to use that button as a point to sort of look at the story holistically and sort of talk about some aspects of the story that I don't think are either being considered enough or um, can help sort of flesh out the where we go from it here of it all. So for people that don't know, I have to say, as someone in and out of fashion for many, many years, back in the day, even before I was part of the fashion industry, when I just used to go out to parties, there were long rumors, because I would see Alexander Wang at various parties that I went to, and these rumors always existed. I, I don't have specific anecdotes to share or specific stories. It was just kind of always known that Alexander Wang exhibited predatory behavior at these parties. Allegedly, allegedly, allegedly. It just was something that was sort of known. It was right. talked about. It, it was known that he was someone who just got drunk, got others drunk around him, and used his position of power. The specifics of how he used it were not known. And as a result, I just think it stayed in the space of rumor because there was no one, in, at least that I knew of, that was able to have a firsthand experience or something, uh, something to really take that information and actually see something be done with it. So things came to a head in December of 2020, so just a few months ago, when a model named Kyle Mooney came forward and posted a video in which he spoke about incidents at a club in which he had unwarranted uh, advances made on him. There was touching, groping, etc. cetera. Uh, and finally, after a little bit of uh, trying to not mention the name, he came forward and said, you know what, actually, I'm going to mention the name, and the name is Alexander Wang. That story was picked up by Shit Model Management, which is a social media account sort of that's dedicated to righting the wrongs of the fashion industry, calling out sort of the ways in which this industry sort of, they allow figures like Alexander Wang to not be held accountable. That's sort of Shit Model Management's goal. Diet Prada, and for those not familiar, Diet Prada is a you know, uh, a watchdog within the fashion industry on social media. So these two accounts band together reposted Kyle Mooney's uh, TikTok videos in which he came forward with these allegations. And that sort of led to other victims coming out and saying, I've had similar experiences. Um, and it wasn't just gay men, uh, trans women. Gia Garrison is a model that came forward. She actually came forward years ago with her own story. But I think that there's been a bunch of, as I said, like stories that have been out there that once Kyle Mooney came forward, it kind of broke the proverbial dam, if you will. And others felt incentivized, you know, or maybe empowered by Kyle's statement to say, hey, I recognize uh, that story that you're sharing because that story happened to me. So that's where things landed in December. And then on January 4th, Alexander Wang made his first statement publicly um, addressing the the all of what had happened. And I think that's because because of uh, sites like Diet Prada, but also just because of Twitter culture, it this story got 
had some legs on it that I don't know if uh, if it would have had if it weren't for social media. And also, for those that don't know, I just want to say briefly, Alex Wang is an interesting uh, figure within the fashion world as he really is that sort of like celebrity brand of designer. Sure. Um, a la like uh, Jeremy Scott is another one that comes to mind. But there's someone who sort of like their identity is ingrained within the DNA of the brand. Not just because it is the name of the brand, but... There, Alexander Wang represents a sort of lifestyle in a way that is the same with like a brand like a Chanel or a Chloe. Um, but I think that that is really distinct in the fact that Alexander Wang's brand was meant to encapsulate partying, nightlife, all of these cultures that he very much was present within. And so that's why I think a lot of people take this story very seriously, not just because they're allegations of sexual assault, but because it feels like he went, this queer person went into a queer space and broke the code of conduct. Um, And I think that hits um, very, very hard and very, very personal because obviously LGBTQ plus spaces, bars, parties, et cetera, um, we'd like to believe are safe spaces for our community. So he released this statement on January 4th saying, quote, I'd like to take the opportunity to connect directly with the people who have followed and supported this brand and me over the years and address the recent false, fabricated, and mostly anonymous accusations against me. I want to pause to insert the fact that um, they are not mostly anonymous accusations. There were multiple people that came forward, named figures that came forward. And so I think it's worth hearing in statements like this, pausing and fact-checking them along the way, because I think that there are a number of instances of gaslighting within this initial statement that I think I'm not the first person to call out, but are worth sort of adding, um, getting in there and saying, wait a minute, this is, this is us. He continued, quote, These baseless allegations were started on social media by sites which repeatedly disregarded the value and importance of evidence or fact-checking. My team is doing everything in its power to investigate these claims, and I promise to remain honest and transparent throughout that process. I am fortunate to have received an overwhelming amount of support over the last few days, and am thankful to those standing by my side at this time, Alex. So that statement um, received a lot of scrutiny um, in sort of, I mean, you all just heard it. It's just a, it's a bizarre statement to release. Uh, He closed off all of the comments on the post to me, which is a sign of someone who's not, who's looking to make a statement and then back away, not looking to start a conversation. Um, Not to say that he needs to start a conversation in this instance, but it sort of reads a certain way. I also think it's notable that he put this statement out on social media. And the funny thing to me when someone posts a comment like this on social media but closes off the comments is it's sort of, you're using this platform of social media, but you're sort of using it you're trying to say, I'm, but I'm doing this, but I'm doing it on my own terms. But that's really not what the platform is built for, right? It's built for commenting and reposting and interacting and all of these things. So not to say someone can't release a statement and close the comments, but I think that that's notable. So that's what happened in January. This received a lot of uh, press at the time. And then we had a few other victims, some anonymous, some named, come forward. And then finally, enough victims had come forward, 11 in fact, that Lisa Bloom, the attorney Lisa Bloom, came forward and said that she was going to represent 11 of the people that had come forward. And... As a result, Wang also lawyered up. He hired Eric M. George, who's known for representing Kanye West and Kim Kardashian in their lawsuit against YouTube in 2013, and Andrew B. Brettler, who is known for representing a colorful list of clients, including Brian Singer, Danny Masterson, Ryan Adams, Yikes. and Chris Brown. Yeah. 
Yikes. Yes. Uh, so then the New York Times ran a big story about this. And I always say it's like, and you know, I think people know this. Once a story rises to the level of being written up in the New York Times, I think it sort of set the initial story, which was more or less contained to social media via diet Prada and shit model management. Once it was up on the New York Times, it sort of was clear that this conversation had transcended just the walls of social media and that, that there might actually be consequences for Alex Wang and by proxy for the brand. But I found something really interesting in the kicker to the Times story. Uh, interesting and chilling. There is a quote uh, from uh, an industry consultant and former Barney's New York fashion director, and it reads, quote, scandals can certainly uproot a brand. That doesn't mean they can't be replanted. So far, no legal action has been taken by Ms. Bloom or Mr. Wang. That was where the New York Times story netted out. After nearly two months and multiple accusers, it struck me as odd that a case this high profile would have no forward movement. So I reached out to Lisa Bloom. She got back to me saying that, quote, in every case, we have a thorough vetting process to obtain and review witness statements and evidence such as texts, receipts, and emails. This process can take time, but it's essential to winning cases. In all our cases against high-profiled accusers, the victims have strength in numbers. When they join together, they give each other solace, strength, and hope. Each time I meet with them, I am inspired by their courage. When I asked her what we should expect by in terms of the next step in this process, she said, quote, litigation is a strong possibility. That was in an email to me on February 19th. And I spoke to my friend, Jenny Odegaard, who is a council member at Salmondinger Law, and she told me that sexual assault allegations are extremely difficult to turn into a civil suit. She told me, quote, most legal action comes down to either videos, photos, or audio recordings, which is extremely rare, witnesses and or friends who remember hearing about it at the time. Even with some of those things, a victim has to have a lot working in their favor to have enough to be believed by the legal system in any way that was would result in culpability. Odegaard also told me that working in the plaintiff's favor is the fact that many of these alleged assaults took place in public settings, making it more likely that there are key witnesses who can corroborate the accuser's stories. It makes sense then, as she notes, that this time this would be a time-consuming process as those potential witnesses must be tracked down and encouraged to speak on the record in addition to any other details or evidence that must be collected to help build a case. And so... That was sort of the last we heard. As I mentioned, that was February 19th. And at that point, it became more or less a waiting game um, to sort of see what was going to happen. That brings us to March 8th, when out of nowhere, Alex Wang issued uh, the first Instagram post since that initial post, uh, uh, that statement in January. This was the, the latest statement and only in his only post since that last statement. And he wrote, quite simply, a number of individuals have come forward recently to raise claims against me regarding my past personal behavior. I support their right to come forward, and I've listened carefully to what they had to say. It was not easy for them to share their stories, and I regret acting in a way that caused them pain. While we disagree on some of the details of these personal interactions, I will set a better example and use my visibility and influence to encourage others to recognize harmful behaviors. Life is about learning and growing, and now that I know better, I will do better end quote. Not a great statement, uh, in my personal opinion, um, because I'm really struck by that last line, now that I know better, I will do better, um, which I think to me reads quite strangely in the sense that what I'm inferring from that is now that I know unwarranted touching, groping, 
all of the things that are sort of encapsulated in 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 the behaviors that these victims have have portrayed all of that was stuff that was unbeknownst to him was was uh wrong and now that these people have come forward now he knows it's wrong I, I, yeah i just there's a lot again it's like if you're going to release these statements and they're going to be in this case so short you're going to leave a lot of room for interpretation and a lot of uh, holes for people to sort of dig dig around in. Matt, as someone outside of the fashion industry, I'm curious, how much did you know about this story before before today? And, and sort of what do you make of these contrasting statements? We have the statement from January 4th that is very much saying these are baseless allegations. And then we have cut to March 8th, a statement that's basically saying, I have listened to people. It was not easy easy for them to share their stories, but I disagree on their personal accounts. But that said, now that I know better, I will do better. I mean, so I'd heard of the story. I mean, it was kind of everywhere at certain points, especially, you know, after January. And but I wasn't intimate with the details of it until I read your article that you wrote. And all right, first, the first statement is kind of complete horseshit, I think. I mean, or it feels like someone something someone would say if they have no faith in anyone else around them. Like the fact that he says, I will try and be honest while lying through his teeth saying that they were like, you cited facts that a bunch of them were not anonymous. There were some anonymous, but the majority had names behind them. And he's saying they're anonymous. Like there's a lot of, but that's typical, right? Especially men's statements in these moments, they deflect. They say it's untrue, even with some proof. Also, we live in a legal system with a legal system where the burden of proof is on the victim, not the person who commits the atrocity. Right. And so that complicates everything also. And then the follow-up statement is the kind of hollow statement we tend to hear when someone when some when something's up and someone just wants to move forward. I'm not saying that Alexander Wang couldn't grow from this experience and didn't learn anything. What I am saying is that it seems like his bigger concern is moving past it and getting things back to quote unquote status quo with that second statement and less about actually learning, especially the bit about saying uh, our stories don't match, but I've learned you're essentially calling them liars without saying they're liars. You're calling them liars. And I don't know. What do I think of it? I mean, it's garbage. It's terrible, right? Like if it's one First one, there's a chance for one of those two parties to be lying, but when, which is still very rare, but when it's 11 verse one and more than 11 uh, anonymously, it is very unlikely that all of those 11 people are lying. Men in this country have wanted to fabricate this narrative that victims lie to get something. And it's untrue. If you're a victim of something like this, you don't want to think about it. You want to move past it. Anyone who's been through this kind of trauma wants it to go away so they can grow and and move on with their life. If they're bringing it up, it's because there's a reason or because they they can't move on or because they're still hurting or because it's still happening, right? I'm reminded of the... No, go, continue. I was going to say, I'm reminded of a conversation we had several weeks ago around Charisma Carpenter, and I brought up that a family member of mine had said something about, well, why is she coming forward now? And my question to that being, well, what is it in you that makes you go to that yeah. place, that line of questioning, rather than, what, as you're saying, the idea that this might be something that has traumatized a person or troubled someone so much in a way that they felt that they they did not feel empowered enough to come forward or something in them. We don't know the story of why people come forward when they come forward, but the amount of scrutiny that some, not all, that some people give to those people for coming forward and trying to poke holes at the why 
completely negating the fact that, okay, but what about the thing that they are saying? It's not to say that we can't ask, why is this person coming forward now? That's a valid question to ask down the line, but maybe in the beginning, maybe to start off with, we listen to what they're saying. We consider their words. And so I think, uh, to your point, it's just interesting to me that some people, not all people, but some people immediately go to that space of, well, what do these people have to gain? And I do think in this instance, there, there's something deeply insidious about that, that we've created a society in which that for so many people is the sort of like default mode that people go into. I think it disempowers so many victims and it, it makes victims feel more fearful of coming forward. And it's not even that it's the people that don't believe them. It's the people that sometimes, I, a lot of these people, it's like they're not the people not believing, but they're the people that sort of allow that voice in their head, uh, allow the voice of the people that do not believe to to get in their head and, and make them think, well, let's consider blah, blah, blah. It, it, it's That to me is like the, the darker part of all of this. But I, I do want to bring up where we sort of netted out with Lisa Bloom. So she came forward that same day as the Alexander Wang statement saying, quote, no, excuse me, this was on Twitter. This was a tweet. I do think like, we do need to talk about the fact that so much of this played out on social media. Yeah. And I think that that... I don't have an opinion about like the validity of that, um, but there is just something strange about seeing Alex Wang releasing both of these statements on his Instagram, and then now having Lisa Bloom come forward in a tweet. I mean, obviously, I know like we have a country in which you know, in, over the past from 2016 to 2020, you know, all of the bullshit we had to put up with, you know. Trump and many other politicians on yeah. Twitter um, just mouthing off. But there is just something weird about something, especially when it involves the legal system, um, that it comes out in tweet form. And mind you, uh, you know, for those of you who don't know, Lisa Bloom is, has a troubled past of her own, having represented Harvey Weinstein at one point several years ago. Anyway, her tweet reads... We have met with Alexander Wang and his team. My clients had the opportunity to speak their truth to him and express their pain and hurt. We acknowledge Mr. Wang's apology and we are moving forward. We have no further comment on this matter. And that sort of brings us to the sort of where I wanted to bring the conversation today, which is to say sort of like, where do we go from here? And I think one of the big questions is, you know, can the Alexander Wang brand survive? That's one of the questions. I have to say uh, they went dark on social media for quite some time. So on December 28th, 2020, they posted one of their looks. They did not post again until February 12th. Um, so for about a month and a half, they went completely dark on social media. They resumed posting on social media on February 12th, wishing their followers a happy Lunar New Year. Since then, they have gotten back into the rhythm of regular posting. And their most recent post um, from one day ago has 3,900 likes. But I mean, going back to the post before that, which is from, it's from March 11th, that post has 10,000 likes, which, you know, I, it just signals to me that there is still an audience out here that is interested in this brand, regardless of whatever has transpired. I did an interview uh, with a writer from the Daily Beast who was writing a story about this. And, and one thing that she asked me at the end of the interview, she said, is there anything else you want me to know about this as I move forward in, in the piece? And I said, to her, it's really important that we realize that there is going to remain a great amount of unknown when it comes to this story. One, because Lisa Bloom made it clear in that tweet that that's all she is going to say on the matter, right? And it's there's reason to believe Alexander Wang is not going to be keen to be speaking about this moving forward. 
It's also very likely that it seems, and again, this is conjecture, it seems like some sort of settlement was made. If you look at the fact that Bloom's statement and Wang's statement came out on the same day, it tells you that some sort of meeting happened and something happened in which there was some kind of settlement of some kind. I use the term settlement not to say that there was necessarily a monetary settlement, although, you know, speaking candidly on this podcast, I believe it was monetary. I, ha- I That is not the journalist in me. That is just a person uh, reading everything that's out there publicly about this story. I have to believe that some sort of monetary settlement was reached. Um, The unfortunate thing that I think people need to be aware of is that more than likely, those 11 victims that came to Lisa Bloom would have signed an NDA when they first even got involved with Lisa Bloom. So there's a world in which we might say, okay, well, Lisa Bloom is done speaking, Alexander Wang is done speaking, but maybe these 11 victims might come forward and detail more about Either, either their experiences with Wang and or what happened in the ensuing conversation, um, but yeah. they cannot. Um, so it's really important that there's no sort of questioning as to, okay, well, why is there not more information known? Why haven't we heard these victims say anything else or further explain their stories? Because they cannot. They cannot. They legally cannot. More than likely, again, allegedly, 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 um, but they, allegedly, <laughs> they more than likely cannot. Um, I do think one thing worth meditating on is the idea that these 11 victims, um, some of them, all of them might have met with Alexander Wang and reached some sort of peace of mind with him, whether that be through their conversation or through a monetary settlement that they saw fit for the, the pain that they had endured. And that's that on that. Like there is a world in which these eleven victims got what they wanted, and I don't. I, I. I. We don't know. We won't know. But I think it's worth sort of just. That's the frustrating thing about a story like this is to not you. You want to sort of in situations like this sort of take your cues. Or excuse me, I do. I should speak on my own behalf. I want to take my cues from victims. All right. So it's like I want to if they are happy. I am happy. If they got what they wanted out of this, then that is, excuse me, happy is, it feels like a weird word in this instance, but you know, I, I just, I, I try and take my cues off of them, but because they are more than likely again, allegedly, 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 NDA'd, it's just hard to know the inner workings of this story. And uh, so one thing I'm curious about is whether or not more victims could come forward, victims that were not tied to the 11 that were with Lisa Bloom. And I'm also curious to see how the fashion industry will respond. I mean, I look at problematic figures in fashion from Carl Lagerfeld to uh, Stefano Gabbana to John Galliano to Bruce Weber. There's many of them. And uh, there is a number of people in fashion men in fashion um, who have been accused of all sorts of behavior that continue or continue, not all of them have, have survived. Um, I'm referring to Karl Lagerfeld, and I'm sorry, I'm not, I don't mean to laugh at one's death. Um, there are a number of figures of fashion who uh, continue to work in fashion, um, whether that be because fashion turns a blind eye, whether that be because fashion's bottom line, i.e. the dollar sign, is more important, that's for all of us to think about. And again, we'll never really know, but I am curious to see how Alexander Wang moves forward, especially a brand, as we mentioned, that is so rooted in nightlife culture. I cannot imagine Alexander Wang stepping out into a nightlife space again without it being incredibly uncomfortable. Um, I also just can't see 
the how the brand moves forward because this industry is so public, right? It's all about parties and events and red carpet and front row. And because his name is the brand, it's one of those things where if you see someone, you know, the other Oscars, for instance, are coming up. And if you were to see Alexander Wang on the red carpet, that's putting his name associating his name with whatever celebrity is wearing it. And that is not a name that at the moment, if not for forever, that I I imagine many celebrities are keen to be associated with. And yet I think about how many stars are traipsing about on carpets uh, wearing Dolce & Gabbana because their stylists put them in it and they don't know better. So it really remains to be seen But I'm particularly keen to watch this story just because something that you mentioned earlier, the amount of victims that have come forward make it so that, you know, it's hard. I'm speaking on my own behalf here. It's hard not to know, you know, you can never know for certain, but it's hard. I just, I believe that this man does not, should not have a place in this industry moving forward. And it's difficult to work in an industry and and likely interact with people who will be enablers in his ongoing career. At the same time, there are people that work for Alexander Wang, the company, that have nothing to do with Alexander Wang, the person, who I do not believe should have, should lose their job, should have this company close as a result. It's really quite complicated. And so I think what I'm most keen to do moving forward is just sort of like watch how this story advances. But I think this reminds me of the Britney Spears conversation that we have in today's episode with Monroe Bergdorf, but I'm sure a lot of people are are following right now. And I think one of the frustrations from, and this also reminds me of like the Army Hammer story that I didn't want to speak about several weeks ago, because these are stories in which not only do we not know critical information, they're stories that we likely will never know critical information. And I feel like in order to talk about something I, I with 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 real introspection I believe that I, I want to know that if there is not a there there there's the eventuality of a there there and when it comes to a story like this particularly with these NDAs I just don't know how we ever get justice but then I have to remind myself there is a world in which these 11 victims got whatever justice looks like for them I think that's the complex part of this conversation. Um, And there's a world in which they happily sign that NDA because for them it was worth it in order to either have that face-to-face time with Alexander Wang or to receive whatever that settlement looked like. So yeah, that's where I net out on all of that. Matt, do you have anything else to add? I mean, I just think it's important that we understand that also so many men... It's a lot of men men. come forward about these kinds of things or have to face these kinds of things and then disappear for a few months and then bounce right back, you know, Mm -hmm. to some degree or another, some more than others. You know, Louis C.K. thought he could go on tour again right before the pandemic. That didn't go so well for him. But like, I I still, (laughs) this is a different example of a person who's done a heinous thing, but that people are willing to just jump back in. But Mel Gibson put out some movie last year, I think it was. And I saw so many people on Twitter jump right back on. I love Lethal Weapon. I'm so glad he's back. And it's like, the dude is still an anti-Semite. It has not changed. It, It is fact. This man has said horrible things about the Jewish people. We, he's, there's no back. He's not back. Yes, he's still yes. a problem. Like, and it's not even about canceling. It's about understanding that this man has said heinous stuff and should 
there should be repercussions for it. And so I just, I unfortunately, like like you, if the victims have gotten to some resolution that they are satisfied with, that's what matters. But I find it hard to believe that the, that Alexander Wang is going to vanish. If he does, and there is some semblance of justice, whatever that looks like, so be it. But I just unfortunately don't have a lot of faith in a lot of the industries that these people have. You know, it, it depends on the industry. It depends on the person, right? But a lot of men have done heinous stuff or been accused, allegedly, 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 of doing heinous yeah, yeah. stuff and then disappear for a while and then just come back. And so we'll have to see. You know, I think these kinds of conversations are ongoing. We've talked many times this season in the uptops about, you know, consequences and re repercussions for this kind of stuff. And ultimately, we're not in the room. We don't know all of the information. We can only speculate and talk about what we see. Yes. And and what's going on. And ultimately, that's all we can yeah. do. Yeah. And I do just, I want to thread the needle on a thought from earlier that I don't quite think I, I landed on just really quickly before we get to our interview. And that is just to say, I hope that we as a society interrogate more why there are people that ultimately do believe victims, but sort of entertain the conversation of, but what if that, they, you know, but what right. if they weren't telling the truth or something? I don't understand the value of that sort of messaging that gives equal weight to the conversation as though these situations, and again, people might disagree with me on this, but I just, I don't like that idea that's put out into people's heads, um, not put into people's heads that people actually believe, but that idea of that there's credibility in potentially not believing a victim. I understand there are situations in which we've had people come forward and they were not telling the truth, but those are specific instances. And I wish we would really move forward with the collective understanding that not only should we believe victims, but we should wonder what it is that that has people come forward and so brazenly entertain the idea of both sidesisms on conversations like this. That 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 fundamentally bothers me. I have a friend who says online often, the devil has enough advocates, he doesn't need your help. Right? This yes. idea that yeah. there's no reason to play devil to advocate in a story that you're on board with wherever you are, because there's no reason. It doesn't help the conversation pretty much ever to play devil's advocate. And so, yeah, I'm I'm with you there. I don't understand it, and yet it still happens constantly. Yes, um, I like that uh, quote. So without any further ado, but also feel free, I want to know what people think about the Alexander Wang Please. of it all, because I, I am really curious about this story, and also I, I want to gain other people's understandings because there's a lot of minutia in this story. Um, and I'm curious too, I mean, I'm obviously in the fashion industry. I'm curious for people outside of it. I, I always wonder this too with Dolce & Gabbana. It's like, how much do people care about these things outside of the industry? And uh, yeah, so, uh, you know, as always, feel free to feel free to weigh in. Without any further ado, I'm so excited for this interview. This was the interview that I got the most requests about when I would put out feelers of what guests people wanted to come on. Everyone wanted her, um, and for good reason. And my God, did she deliver. Um, I'm so excited for those that know her to have another chance to hear her uh, astute perspective. And, and, and more importantly, for those that might not know her, let this be a time to get caught up on all the glory and magnificence that is the great Monroe Bergdorf. Let's get into it. She is a model, activist, and scholar, having been awarded an honorary doctorate in 2019 for her contributions campaigning for transgender rights. She has appeared on the covers of Teen Vogue, Paper, Glamour, Gay Times, Attitude, and was most recently on the cover of Time magazine. 
In August 2020, British Vogue named her in the top 25 most influential women in the country alongside Rihanna and the Queen, right where she belongs. She has fronted campaigns for beauty, fashion, and lifestyle brands, and closed shows at both New York and London Fashion Weeks. She is routinely featured on national and international news outlets, and has written for a number of esteemed publications, including British Vogue, Grazia, ID, Evening Standard, and The Guardian. In 2019, she was appointed LGBT plus editor at Dazed Beauty, profiling some of the most groundbreaking queer talent of the moment. And lest we not forget that later this year, after an 11-way bidding war, she will publish her debut literary offering, Transitional. She has been one of the most requested guests on this podcast from the outset. She is strong. She is slick. She is irreverent. She's brave, uncompromising, and a force for change in ways that will last beyond her time on this plane. More than anything, I am deeply honored to get to call her my friend. She is the great and magnificent Monroe Bergdorf. God! (laughs) You weren't playing with the introduction. (laughs) I want to hit you with a big question off the bat. I recently hear that you binged watch 10 seasons of The Real Housewives of Beverly Hills, having never before watched a single Housewives episode. So I just want to know, top level, having watched now 10 seasons, what are your grand takeaways? You know what? I always kind of wrote it off just because reality TV has never really been my thing. But there's something about Housewives that is just so interesting and enticing and just their mindset is so different to you know the regular people on earth (laughs) I don't know I well I think really it was like watching you incessantly post about it all the time and my friend (laughs) suggested why don't we watch housewives and I was like okay yeah let's let's go for it and I watched the first episode and I was just like who are these people And what planet are they on? It's really interesting, their dynamic. And in the beginning, I was, you know, really obviously obsessed with like um, Lisa Vanderpump and like, you know, the hierarchy that they have in in Beverly Hills. And then I loved Yolanda. I think my current favorite is Dorit. Fashion queen. Just because she's giving me big trans women tees. (laughs) You know, like, we've seen Dorit go on a transition. Let's be real. Dorit has transitioned. Um, <laughs> and I don't know. I really like her personality. I think that she she's fun. I think she always ends up in the drama, but doesn't necessarily um, create it. I'm really, really interested with Erica Jane. And I know that she's going through a lot of stuff at the moment. So I'm interested to hear about that from her perspective rather than reading about it. Lisa Rinna is hands down my favorite. I think that she's great. And I, I love how she's just, you know, really unfiltered, but a good person, but at the same time, loves a bit of drama. Yeah, I think she's really relatable. You know, she's not too good. She's not too bad. Yeah, I love that kind of character on a show like this that stirs the pot, but then can go in the confessional and be like, I know exactly what I'm doing. Like what you just saw, yeah. I, I maneuvered this myself. Also, when, when she gets things wrong, she admits it. And she, you know, she's not too big to um, apologize. And yeah, I mean, Amsterdam was Amsterdam. probably one of the best things I've ever seen on television and the dinner party from hell or the tea party from hell. I can't remember. And also games night. Games night was amazing. And also Brandy Glanville. (laughs) 
Andrew Glanville and Taylor. The whole Taylor thing was wild. Anyway, I could talk about this all day. Well, it's really fascinating <laughs> because, I mean, for a lot of people that don't watch the show, I think they have a lot of preconceptions about, like, what Housewives is because they think of, like, the moments that have sort of transcended Housewives, like Teresa flipping the table, for instance. But it really is a fascinating anthropological study, not only of, like, yeah. human behavior, but also just in reality television as a genre because you think back yeah. upon that early season of Beverly Hills, the first season it was 10 years ago, maybe 11 at this point, and just the way that people were a little less self-aware and self-edited and how they acted, how they dressed. Like, the show didn't used to be this, like, grand display of fashion. That evolved over time yeah. through people realizing the, the branding opportunity that presented itself through reality television. I mean, I could talk about this all day. So, I mean, I, I could interject all, 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 all the time. Well, one yeah. last <laughs> question about it. A lot of folks, including Gloria Steinem, have argued against the Housewives franchise. Steinem famously blasted it uh -huh. for its presentation of women as, quote, rich, pampered, dependent, and hateful towards each other. I think that that is the perspective of someone that has not devoted enough time to it personally to really grasp the nuance. But what's your perspective having watched 10 seasons of this? Oh my god. Well, <laughs> first of all, I'm a huge Gloria Steinem fan, so I'm, you know, I think everybody's entitled to their opinion, but I think when you when we critique things, it's really important that we watch them. I, I mean, I was invested in this. <laughs> and um I think they don't represent all women. I think that it's important that we recognize that we live in a world where there's all different kinds of women and these women are pampered. They are hateful to each other. But I think that there's multiple storylines, aren't there? There's a storyline that we see and then there's a storyline that everybody in the cast knows but isn't spoken about. Like who's selling stories, who's saying such and such about such and such. It's really interesting. And I, I just lo I love how layered it is. But I don't think that we can take the housewives and say that it's representative of all women or that it shows all women up because that's you know, not fair, really, because, you know, no woman should have to be a representative for all women. So, and I, th I think that's the case with, you know, across the board, especially in, in the entertainment industry, where we see, like, you know, Cardi B being slammed because she's a bad representative for women. And, you know, strippers exist, sex workers exist. It's, you know, not every woman has to be a primary school teacher, and nor should she, you know, want to if she doesn't want to be. So yeah, I think that it's, I think it's really interesting. And I'm kind of kicking myself that I wrote it off before I watched it. And I think that more people should watch it because it is really interesting. Well, I think you chose a great entry point. I also would recommend for people that are kind of new to the foray, The Real Housewives of Potomac, I really do feel like is the other franchise outside of Beverly Hills that you can kind of get into from the outset. Because New York, I think, takes a little time to percolate, but Potomac is good from the jump and Queen Karen Huger. Let's put some respect on that name. Now, I know you and I have been closely following the Britney Spears drama, which came to more prominent attention after the New York Times and Hulu released the documentary Framing Britney Spears several weeks ago. Mm -hmm. Before I ask for your thoughts on that, I think it's fair to say that queer people have an unusually large investment in Britney Spears because she is, for many of us, who helped shape our idea of superstardom, our idea of like just perseverance, our idea of success, our idea of greatness. What is your relationship like with Britney Spears? I mean, I came out in high school when I was 14. So I came out very early as gay. And 
Britney, I don't know what it is about Britney. She's fascinating to everyone. I think that you're lying if you're not fascinated by Britney Spears then and now. And there's something about her. She's like a Marilyn Monroe. I feel like she's a living version of Marilyn Monroe insofar as the effect that she has on people. And, you know, when you see her, you're drawn to her. There's definitely something about her. I mean, I was thinking the other day, who looks like that? Right. You know, who perform like that? Who is that multi-talented? You know, like regardless of now, after all she's been through and life has really kicked it out of her. I mean, show me anybody else that could have dealt with all of that. But someone that that is that multi-talented that can host SNL, that can perform, you know, world tours, even after a breakdown, that can do films, that can sell products all over the world it's just you know this is a kind of superstar that is once in a lifetime this is like Michael Jackson I completely agree with you I think that there's something that queer people specifically have with her in feeling like she represents this idea of being misunderstood or having to assert yourself in a world that sometimes feels like it's working against you feeling the need to prove yourself there's just something I I noticed that when Britney Spears posts on Instagram and I go to the comment sections it's just flooded by queer people shouting her out boosting her up and i in my what what part of my brain is like this is insane she's not reading this but the other part of me gets it because there's just this idea of wanting to affirm someone that for so much of our lives affirmed us in ways that she probably didn't even know and yet deeply impacted so many of us when i was in high school it was obviously just being enamored by her and then i think Around 2003, it was more about the sexual awakening. There was just something like seeing her go from, you know, younger to discovering who she was. And, you know, I kind of went my sexual awakening at the same time as Britney, um, maybe a little less, like a little a few years later. But then seeing it all unravel around 2007, I think that that's when I really connected with her because I had my own breakdown in 2007 and seeing that happen at the same time I don't know if it made it better or worse because it was someone that I was that I'd, you know that we've all connected with over our teens and childhood and I was suddenly in a situation where I had an eating disorder and I was you know partying a lot at university just trying to escape the fact that I knew that I was transgender and I didn't want to actually deal with it. Um, And I was depressed and I was taking antidepressants that weren't working for me. And it triggered an episode. And that actually happened probably a week or two before Brittany had her breakdown. So I think that's where I really connected with her. And I just kind of thought all of this stuff that we have assumed about Brittany to be true isn't true. You know, this girl has been through the ringer and I just want to see her win. I want to see her, you know, get her life back. I want to see her happy. It's lovely seeing her happy with her boyfriend. I love that her boyfriend stood up for her. That was great. And we were gagging about that in the DMs, but I, I just want to see her get her life back. What are your thoughts on the public conversation happening right now? Because as you mentioned, for a lot of us, We have been following this story, and by this story, I just mean the life of Britney for decades now. 
But there are people out there that this documentary is their first exposure to Britney in quite a long time. I know one thing that Sarah Haynes said on The View, which shocked me, was she said when they were discussing the documentary, she said, this is the first time I've heard Britney Spears' name mentioned in a long time. And I was like, what rock are you living under? But then I realized it's like, no, she's living in her reality and I'm living in mine. And her reality is not centered around Britney the way mine is. I do feel like, though, from some of her like diehard fans, there is what I would kind of describe as like a borderline infantilization and sometimes a condescension around how fans speak about Britney. People that love her but tend to speak down about her in ways. I've always found Britney to be really smart. It comes out often in her Instagram captions where you just see that like side of Britney. You're like, Britney is self-aware. Britney is empowered. Britney is a lot of things that we might not know about her. What are your thoughts on the way that the public is speaking about her at present? Because something definitely shifted with that documentary coming out. I think that we just need to be really, really careful about we're not going to put her through what she went through from 2003 to 2008. And it, it seems that things started to really get to her around 2003. We don't know what happened. At the end of the day, we do not know. And as much as we can speculate, as much as we can be there for her, as much as we can, you know, campaign for her freedom, because we know that she wants her freedom. So we can campaign for that. And we can advocate for her to have anonymity over her own life. But how that manifests itself and what she needs as well, we don't know that. We're not doctors. We don't know her medical history. So I think it's really important that we don't induce unwillingly or un, you know, without meaning to another bombardment of media sensationalism that she then has to deal with if she does get her life back. I think we also need to bear in mind that there could be a real possibility that she does need help. And even if she gets her life back, then we don't know how that's going to, you know, look. And I don't think that that's a bad thing if she if she needs help. It's just the way that it is. So I think we just need to be really, really careful that we could be walking into territory where we don't know what that looks like. It's almost like what you're saying is there's a difference between wanting what's best for her and just wanting the conservatorship to be over. Yeah. Because although that might be a step in what is best for her, to know, to want what is best for her is ultimately to not know. Because as you mentioned, we don't know her. I think we also need to be realistic as well. She hasn't had rights to her own life in 13 years. And she's one of the most famous people on the planet. You don't live a normal life when you're that famous. So to say, oh, yeah. you know, she, she's got all of the rights back to her life straight away, the likelihood is that she's going to need help. I think also, I don't think it's necessarily fair to be going after her dad as hard as, you know, some people have been. I think the the likelihood is that he does want what's best for his daughter. But at the same time, I don't necessarily think that being the conservator of her when she says that she doesn't want him as a conservator is fair. I think that, you know, when someone's in that situation and is clearly able to tour, able to record, able to do all of these things that a highly functioning person can do, when they say, my father scares me, I don't want him to be head of my conservatorship. She's not saying that she doesn't want a conservatorship or any help. She's saying that she doesn't want him in there. So I think we just need to like kind of just slow it down and listen to her um, when she speaks 
through her lawyers and just try to, you know, just not get caught up in the scandal. T, favorite Britney Spears song? Oh, anything on Blackout. Oh, yeah. I mean, duh. yeah. Blackout, period. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. <laughs> what about, because one thing is, I feel like as a community, we need to come together in putting some justice on Glory. Do you have a favorite song from Glory? I can't say I'm a Glory <laughs> I mean, I liked that mood ring maybe, song maybe that she justice. put out recently. I think let's do that. <laughs> yeah, that was good. <laughs> Fair. From one legend to another, I want to ask you about Sophie, and I want to first express my condolences. For those that do not know, Sophie was a singer, songwriter, producer, and DJ who left us in January of this year at 34. I know you knew Sophie well. To the extent that you're comfortable talking about this, I just wanted to know what maybe some of your fondest memories are of Sophie. I mean, I wouldn't say that we knew each other like as best friends but I was lucky enough to spend some time with her and you know talk to her as like you know internet friends and then we ended up spending some time in Berlin together. Sophie I mean I feel so heartbroken because Sophie not only created a new genre of music but just by existing, Sophie validated so many different people that hadn't been, you know, recognized by society or even within their own marginalized communities, you know, the gay community um, and the LGBT community for so long has been so non-inclusive of so many people. And Sophie just, you know, took all of those people and brought them in and almost not necessarily intentionally, I don't think. I think that it was just her. And I think everything came back to community with Sophie. I remember talking to her when we were in, when we, we got a plane back and she was talking about how she wanted to create a party like Safe Haven. And that was, you know, what she, what she really wanted to focus on. And it's so, it's just, it's such a loss to the world. And um, her legacy is going to live on. I mean, what an album. What an incredible record. Yeah, I was really struck too in just reading some of the messages from her friends and even fans, how substantive the words that people wrote about her were. It wasn't just rest in peace. It was really detailed and thoughtful responses to someone that had, like a Britney, really impacted people's souls. It wasn't just that they were fans of Sophie's. It was that Sophie had taught them something about themselves that, to your point, they will take on with them in life and moving forward, that she imbued them with something, which is 
such a powerful thing to be able to do as an artist or a creative person. Absolutely. I think the first time that I saw Sophie, I was actually on a shoot and the magazine that I was shooting for had booked her for the cover. And I didn't know who she was at that time. And then we played the new music video at that time, which was It's Okay to Cry. And just seeing a trans woman exist without conforming in the public eye, in an artist space, which you know, really defied genre, defied boxes, defied, you know, expectations or the, the confines of, of gender roles. It's just everything, just seeing that it was so affirming for me as well. And I realized how much as a trans person, you know, how binary I'd been looking at things and the expectations that I not only put on myself, but maybe, you know, other people as well. So it really expanded my worldview. So I, I, I'm not I'm not surprised by the response to her passing. She really meant a lot. And I mean, she's one of those people that when you meet them, they're just they operate she just operated on a different plane you know it was almost like this world was just not good enough for her to be honest she was a really special person thank you for sharing that I, it's really uh, i'm really appreciative of that let's go back to younger monroe i know that you came up in the club scene in the uk yeah. and i want to know talk to me about the uk club scene because from what i know of it and i have yet to experience it but i know that it is just very community oriented Mm -hmm. and it just seems like from what i've seen a hell of a lot of fun what was that time like for you yeah so i mean i started going out when i was 18 and quickly got involved in the in the drag scene in a city called brighton in the uk which is uh, a town of well it's a city but it's a very small city on the coast on the southern coast and i just really found myself in in clubs and it was just i always knew that i wanted to transition from a from an early age but i didn't want to admit it to myself and brighton was where i understood myself and I met my first trans friends. I recognized what was possible. And then I moved to London and became friends with Jodie Harsh, who's um, a drag, probably the most famous drag queen in the UK. Nightlife legend, shout yes. out to Jodie Harsh. And we just, I, I don't know, just ran around town, got into all sorts of situations. <laughs> Nightlife and nightclub spaces are so important and seeing them disappear has been heartbreaking and extremely concerning because when we didn't have social media, that's what we had. That's where we met each other. That's where we got in contact with people that we could see ourselves in. And I'm so looking forward to having it back. Before the pandemic, I completely fell out of love with partying. I don't drink anymore. I don't take drugs. You know, I don't party. And I I kind of just lost sight because I'd been through so much with, you know, partying. And it just became a, a method of escape rather than enjoyment. And then my whole life changed with um, situations in the media. And then I couldn't really go out anymore in the same way without people taking pictures of me or, you know, coming up to me. It just, I kind of lost it unless I was in New York. But I really feel like this whole situation has brought us so much closer together. And I feel like I now... I feel like a teenager that's been cooped up in their bedroom, dreaming of the one day that I'm going to be able to be in a gay bar again. (laughs) 
And that's very much how I feel. I get it. Speaking of your time on the UK club scene, I have a question from a friend of yours. Hello, Monroe darling it's your number one fan Bimini Bamboolash here and I've got a little question for you so we're both from similar worlds similar circuits we've uh, both come up on the club scene and now we're like pushing pushing it and trying to advocate for change what would you say to the younger generation who are in the club scene now but also want to advocate for change and also want to fight for social justice how would you empower them what would you say can't wait to hear lots of love and keep smashing it i'm so so proud of you and i'm so proud to know you i love you lots oh bimini bomboolash <laughs> i'm obsessed i'm obsessed i mean can't get enough bing bang bong uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, oh that's so lovely yeah no me and bimini come from the same kind of you know scene and what would what would be my advice my advice would be don't get caught up in the drama. I feel like, you know, nightlife is a, is such an interesting space because you'll meet people in both the best and the worst points in their lives. People party for different reasons. Some party for community and connection. Some people party for escape and self-destruction. And it's so important to recognize that we're all just humans trying to do our best. And when I was on the nightclub scene, I think I kind of took some things a little bit too personally. I largely transitioned on scene and everybody saw my transitions. Everybody had an opinion about my transition and it became very difficult for me to understand myself, but also to understand other people. So I would say if you are coming up on the club scene and um, in the UK or anywhere, I would say it's so important to find your crowd and to make sure that the people that surround you elevate you, but also help you to be the best person that you can be, that they're not people that are telling you how great you are. Be around people that help you grow. And, you know, the, the great thing about the queer scene and they say the queer scene in the UK now because it was only really the gay scene when I was you know out and about and I was on the you know I partied for a living for 10 years so <laughs> it was it was very much like you know that kind of tease and I, I wasn't always around people that understood me for a long time I was around mainly white gay men who you know hadn't necessarily been around many black trans women and would often fetishize me or objectify me not necessarily intentionally but that's the effect that it would have and it's really important to be in contact with other people like yourself that you can see yourself in that you can you know that people can that can relate to your lived experiences and when it comes to getting involved in social justice i would say always bring it back to community everything has to come back to community. It has to come back to not just, you know, fighting for liberation for yourself, but it has to be an inclusive manifesto for everybody. Yeah, that's what I would say. 
So well said. And and on that note, let me ask you about the expectation of articulation because you are someone that, you know, as I mentioned in your bio earlier, you write for all these esteemed publications, but you also appear on television quite a bit. You are interviewed a lot. And I think there's an expectation as an activist, especially to speak about so many issues and speak about them eloquently. And because so often these conversations are given so little space in mainstream media, I imagine there's the pressure to kind of stick the landing. I remember most famously in all of your conversations with Pierce Morgan, how struck I was by the fact that you had to go in there and essentially go toe to toe with this monster and come out of that in a way that made people understand your perspective. Again, in that instance, for those people, you're representing so much more than just yourself. Mm -hmm. How do you sort of handle those situations and sort of the burden that I imagine is put on your shoulders in not only having to make large points, but also come across a certain way, the expectation to have the message be both clear, concise, powerful, all of these things. Well, when it comes down to being clear and concise, that just comes with practice. And when I first started public speaking, it wasn't in front of necessarily cameras. So I took my time to build up my confidence. And it really does come down to confidence. It comes down to confidence, conviction, research, and recognizing your role within what you're talking about. So I don't speak for other people. If activism's a machine, then I recognize what cog I am. So I speak for that cog. And then I direct other people to the other cogs if they want to learn about other things. So I'm not trying to speak about things that I don't know. That's really important. And then when it comes down to the landing, that again is practice. It's, you know, not necessarily going in on the deep end. So not necessarily going straight onto British morning television, which is a minefield, you know, cut your teeth with panel talks and debates that aren't filmed, start community-based and then work your way out, um, out of the echo chamber. Um, it's a real process. And I feel like what people don't realize necessarily all the time is that I have been doing this for a long time. And I've been involved in activism in different ways for a long time. And I'm also 34. And I think a lot of people don't know how old I am. And they think that sometimes <laughs> I'm much younger than I am. But um, <laughs> I had to be the surgery. But... <laughs> But um, it's also it's also just being blessed and highly favoured. But <laughs> um, <laughs> um, just you know, take your time, and it will come. But you need to invest in yourself, and you need to believe in yourself. If if you don't believe in yourself, and you don't believe in what you're talking about, then you won't be able to you know convince yourself, let alone anybody else. I want to get into cancel culture, which to me, as I've expressed many times on this podcast, is a term that is used by many, but has various meanings depending on your vantage point to it. It's a term I don't ascribe to, but I'm using it here because it is a buzzword. I recently sent donuts to my sister-in-law, shout out to Katie Jane, on the birth of her son, my nephew, Sage Sunshine. She posted about this company, her favorite donut place, and I reposted it. I immediately received a DM from someone that read, no shade, but they support the Chicago Police Department. I've had many instances of situations similar to this, and I have to imagine you do too at times. How do you sort of grapple with the fact that I think people are angry, oftentimes rightfully so? How do you deal with 
people expressing this desire to make you feel like the things that they feel a certain way about that you need to also be aligned in their feeling about it. Yeah, it's, it's a minefield. It's a real minefield. I think sometimes it's really warranted, but also sometimes I feel like people remove the humanity of people to paint them into being this monstrous force that we should absolutely abolish. And the reality is you can't abolish people. Yes, you can stop supporting businesses and um, investing in people that perpetuate harm. But when it comes to somebody that's made a mistake or misstepped or misspoke or done something in their past that they regret that isn't, you know, absolutely horrific. I think that we need to look at the nuance of the situation. And it often isn't as black and white as it's painted out to be. One thing that you said earlier that struck me was your comment about Jamie Spears, which is one that I think is very counter to the one that's popular on social media, right? Popular on social media right now is to say, fuck Jamie Spears because he can be the antagonist in the situation. And we want justice for this person. So we want to find an enemy and he is the easiest enemy to find. And I was really struck when you said that he might not be the enemy. He might be the enemy. He might not be the enemy. There's complexity there. There's nuance. And I think one thing that many people would agree on is that social media is not a space that loves nuance, that lives for nuance. But how do you sort of try and imbue nuance into these spaces that are not built for them? It's really difficult, but I think it's by encouraging critical thinking and encouraging people to think for themselves rather than be part of the mob. And I think, you know, with social media, the way that social media is set up, there's such an immediacy of response, especially when you have a platform and you're expected to respond quickly. And if you respond quickly, that means that you, there's less chance for you to read up on all of the evidence and discovery. If we're thinking about it in a legal way, then, you know, effective legal response, you do your research and you get the discovery. And you can't do that if you're just, you know, going to go straight off the bat and regurgitate what you've seen off the bat. So I would urge people to first stop, think about the fact that the person that you are going to be commenting on is another human being and that you aren't inside those walls with them. So you don't really know. And largely, if it isn't from an official source, you're speaking on speculation. Right. So I think the most important thing is to recognize your humanity and their humanity and then speak about it. There's nothing wrong with wanting the best for Brittany. There's nothing wrong with recognizing that her and her dad probably don't get on and probably fuck Jamie Spears. But also, <laughs> probably, yeah. <laughs> probably, but also Jamie Spears is her dad and has been her caregiver for the past 13 years. So I think that we just need to give a little bit of wiggle room and also think about the 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 end result of cancelling where do you expect that person to go what happens to that person now is that person able to redeem themselves is that person able to grow is there a possibility that Brittany and her dad just have a turbulent relationship like a lot of people do with their parents but also we're not underneath legal conservatorship so of course there's going to be 
I, I just think that people need to just think a little bit outside of the lines. Yeah, this reminds me of a recent conversation on The View that I was really struck by. Love when The they View. Were, love The View. Need <laughs> The View. And it was Whoopi Goldberg, who oftentimes can espouse unpopular opinions that I often really love. And they were talking about the current debate that's happening around unpaid internships. Yeah. And... Whoopi was defending unpaid internships and saying that there are situations where you want an opportunity with an employer and they do not have the financial means to pay you, but they have they are such artisans in a specific skill set that it's behoove of you, you if you can, because not everyone can, but it's behoove of you if you can to take on the unpaid internship. And I kept thinking, wow, what an unpopular opinion, because right now the, the common thought that you see on the internet is if they're not paying you, that's bullshit. And it is, I get that. But there's again, nuance here because I was like, you know what? She's right. There are young designers that have really specific skill sets, Milner's for instance, that might not have the resources to pay an internship and might say, Hey, do you want to come for five hours a week? I can't pay you, but what I can do is I can teach you this skill mm -hmm. that you will have that you will eventually be able to profit from. And I yeah. just was so struck by that because I was like, that's something that you could never put in a 140 character tweet saying, hey, I'm for unpaid internships. It's going to sound a certain way. And yet when you dig into it, there's some validity there. Absolutely. 100%. I mean, we both work in like fashion or around fashion. And like, we know that, you know, where a lot of people think that there's budget, there is no budget. And, you know, when it comes even now, when it comes to like me shooting a cover, the budgets for cover stories are so small. So a lot of people are working on, you know, reduced fees and whatnot. And it's, it's a real nuanced situation because publications don't actually have a lot of money. Girl. <laughs> no, I, I agree. Yeah, <laughs> no, they don't. Really I was like, don't. Oh, did I say something wrong? <laughs> no, no, girl, you're spilling. No, I, I it's funny. Uh, the the most high profile things that I do professionally, more often than not, are the lowest paying things that I do, and that's fascinating to me. But they're worthwhile to me because of the opportunity that they present. Absolutely, and I think it really does come down to how are those workers treated? Are you expecting unpaid workers to do the workload and responsibility of paid work, or are you giving unpaid interns an opportunity to understand the business but respecting the fact that they're not paid I think that that really is the nuance and not you know expecting unpaid interns that have just come out of university to work from 8 a.m to 8 p.m every single day whilst other people in the office are being paid a lot of money that's not okay but if you're giving an opportunity for people to come in to a workplace where they wouldn't have the opportunity otherwise because there just isn't the money. It's, I, I really do feel like we need to be able to start thinking, bring back critical thinking. Yes. I think it's so important. Yes. And also to your point too, it's like this idea of if you come into this unpaid situation, can you not only feel empowered with new skill sets, can you feel appreciated? Can you get a sense of a fashion industry that wants you to be a part of it, that is looking for change, new voices, new ideas to come in? I feel like so often the prototypical idea of the internship is that the intern is abused or underappreciated or sort of meant to go fetch coffee or something. I think we need to do away with that. And I think if you don't have the, the means to fiscally pay your interns, there are ways in which you can make them feel like they are a part of the process, make them feel empowered so that they really walk away into this industry feeling mm -hmm. like they have a place in it, that this industry is for them. 
Absolutely. It could be like a mentorship, you know, not all mentors pay, but it, it can be a valuable experience. I think it's all about how those workers are treated rather than just saying no work should be, you know, unpaid. Sometimes there just isn't the budget. Right. Speaking of social media, you left Twitter back in February over racist and transphobic abuse. You wrote, quote, no one should have to endure even a fraction of the abuse that I am exposed to and have to put up with on a daily basis. At what point are social media companies going to clamp down on the transphobia on these apps? I'm curious, in your time since leaving Twitter, what effect has that had on your mental health? Oh, my God, a world of difference. Just... I explained it to my management the other day and they were just like, how are you doing? And I thought, I feel like I've literally left an abusive relationship. And as someone who's been in an abusive relationship, I could recognize that it was triggering a lot of the same responses. It was just people having access to me and being able to say things about me that they knew would hurt me. So it was about them knowing my triggers and knowing what to say to hurt me in a way that could almost be co-signed because platforms just aren't doing anything. So it's like, we're going to do this, this, and this because the guidelines are that, that, and that. And it doesn't violate the guidelines, but it's still transphobic and racist. And I'm not willing to put myself in a house where I'm not safe. So I do feel much, much happier just having Instagram. Instagram itself is not perfect either. I was just called the N-word the other day in the comments section that stayed there for three days. So, you know, it, it is what it is, but it's also not good enough. And we need to work together in a way where we hold these platforms accountable for their lack of action in keeping marginalized communities safe. We're in such a dangerous position when it comes to the mental health of young people, especially with navigating a pandemic, but also navigating things like climate change. The fact that the news is a never ending slew of bad news. And then we've got a recession coming and then all of the other stuff that is coming with COVID and, you know, white supremacy and, general divisiveness. I feel like we've got a mental health crisis on the way for young people. So what are these companies going to do about that? Are they going to just, you know, idly stand by so that young people can navigate the wild west online? Or are they going to actually stand with young people and stand with all people that are marginalized and victims of hate and not just put out their policy, but action their policy? Right. And not for nothing, for people that don't know, there are very easy ways for this platform to do these things, you know? They have the technology to do it, let alone the budget, which they definitely have that. But so it is a choice to not do anything about this. It's a definite choice. I mean, mean, we can see that in how Google sacking people that speak out about how certain software is biased. It's a real lack of action. And part of me thinks, do these companies especially these online platforms want the conflict because the conflict is traffic and the scandal is clicks and engagement and divisiveness and all of this like masters debate and freedom of speech is not freedom of speech and debate it's it's driving us all insane and especially when we are so isolated we've never been this isolated in our lives you know we just haven't we can't even see our parents so when we're this isolated and we've got a screen 
full of people telling us how much we suck or how much we're not doing enough. Basically just picking apart our identity and diminishing our existence. Like what is what effect is that having on us? I think it's really developing a lot of trauma in society. I mean, we're already seeing how social media is impacting democracy. It's it's led to an insurrection. It's led to Brexit. It's led to conservative governments manipulating how people vote because of the biases that people hold. So I think we we definitely need some sort of regulation. I don't know how that looks, but we need it. Yeah. It's like we need to begin the conversation to figure out how it looks. I want to ask you about corporate allyship. I'm wondering what your reaction was to a tweet from Oreo, the cookie brand, several weeks ago, which read, quote, trans people exist. I think there are complexities here. On the one hand, it's like work, right? Like it was, it made me laugh. And I don't mean I was laughing at What the statement was, I was laughing at the conceit of Oreo tweeting this. On the other hand, it's a very non-statement. It's not even trans lives matter. It's basically water is wet. And at the end of the day, they're a multi-million dollar corporation that is doing nothing that we know of to help push the Equality Act forward. Apart from Gaga Oreos. (laughs) (laughs) And yet I still kind of love the tweet. Do you have any thoughts on this or instances in general when brands step into conversations like these? Well, it's like that Azealia Banks quote, isn't it? Okay, and what now? (laughs) Do you know what I mean? Is that like, okay, well, what's next? Do you know what I mean? It's like, okay. (laughs) Like if if I see something like that, like someone say gay rights, then I'm just like, okay, well, this is great. And it's great that you are for the cause, but what are you doing for the cause? So I would love to see you know, maybe Oreos take a lot of that coin from the Chromatica Oreos. And I mean, I don't I don't want to assume that they're not giving back, but I would love to see them uh, provide, you know, educational resources. I think a brand that really does it really well is Ben and Jerry's. Yes. Ben and Jerry's don't just make statements. They give informational and educational. Is informational a word? I think yeah. it is. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and educational resources that people can you know, read with their ice cream. I think it's really important to go above and beyond just making statements. I think that we need, we need resources, we need game plan, we need people that aren't afraid to be radical. Because the the reality is, is that if you're not radical in this day and age, then you're part of the status quo. And the status quo, unfortunately, is, you know, white supremacist, it is transphobic, it is homophobic because that's what's been perpetuated for hundreds of years. Let's shift gears by talking a little bit about fashion, the industry that you and I both occupy. Have you always had fashion on the brain or or when did fashion first become something that was for you? I think fashion's always been on the brain in a way. I worked in fashion for three years. When I first moved to London, I was a publicist for Calvin Klein and Lacoste and Puma all of these like kind of big brands. Yeah, it was at one of the biggest PR companies in London. And that's really where I learned how to market myself. I studied media at university, but I put it into action when I started working in PR. And 
I think that that's where I really realized that the industry in my head was not the industry in real life. So I would say that the industry now is much more in line with what I wanted when I was younger. And I think that that's testament to my generation, just changing it to be more inclusive. But I think it, it was really when I started to realize that white people are put on the covers to sell the covers, white models are used to sell the clothes and like how what I look like and who I am just didn't really have the value because it wasn't marketable. That really kind of like made me fall out of love with fashion a little bit. So I've got it back recently. You know, New York fashion is my heart. I mean, we meet up when I'm in New York and I have so many friends there and like people that are part of the scene and part of like the industry that are really just, you know, really changing things. Like, oh, so Rio from Gypsy Sport and um, Telfar and Jerry Pope and all of these people that are just carving out a space where there wasn't one before. Yeah. And not for nothing, for people that haven't had the privilege of seeing you walk at New York Fashion Week, I've seen it several times. And the response from the audience when you come walking down that runway is just not something you hear at your everyday fashion show. People get so energized by your presence on the runway. And that, to me, just sort of signals the excitement over the change that is coming. I wanted to have a a friend of yours from your early days in fashion um, ask you a question. This is like, this is your life. Hey Monro, it's Harry Lambert here. Hope you're well. Um, so I have a question for you, um, a fashion-related question. Um, so I wanted to talk about your journey in fashion. Um, I met you back in the day when I was an assistant and you were working in fashion PR. And I just wanted to see how that journey has been from going, you know, working in PR to now being a fashion icon and being in the pages of British Vogue. I'd love to know about your journey and how yeah, it feels to be on the other side and, you know, being dressed in fabulous clothes and looking beautiful. Um, thanks so much. And I look forward to listening to this podcast. Um, lots of love. Bye. Wow, you really did the rounds. <laughs> <laughs> um, wow. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I met Harry so long ago. And like, it's amazing to see all of these people, you know, all of these people that I mean, we went to this party back in the day called Slave to Fashion, and it sounds really cringe, but it was actually amazing. And it was it was very much like kind of like a lady fag kind of party in London. And, you know, Matthew Williamson, who's now Givenchy, was there and like everyone was there, basically, that is doing really well now. So it's it's kind of wild to have gone from PR to being in front of the camera. It's been a long process, but I, don't, I can't really put my finger on it, but it's, it's much more creative. I was so frustrated when I worked in PR about the lack of creativity. You're really pushing other people's creativity rather than coming up with it yourself. So, I mean, I love that I, I get to do whatever I want and take what I believe in and entwine it into something creative Mm. and do stuff that kind of hasn't been seen before for a lot of people. You know, I'm standing on the shoulders of giants, you know, there's been trans women after trans women and queer people after queer people that have, you know, smashed down the doors so that I can do what I do today. But then I like to think that I'm smashing down some more doors so that whoever comes after me can, you know, smash down whatever I didn't manage to do. (laughs) And 
I, I, I feel like I'm part of something special. I think that we're all special, but we're all, we're existing in a way that's never been done before. And the industry's changing for the better. It's becoming so much more inclusive. I just had, you know, um, breakfast via Zoom with Caroline, who's the president of British Fashion Council. She's one of the most, you know, important women in British fashion. And to think that, you know, I'm a black trans woman at the table with at those kind of conversations and, you know, being invited to Vogue brunches and all of that kind of stuff. It's it's so important, not necessarily just because it's me, but because we are finally having a seat at the table. And that's what I love. And getting to work with L'Oreal and being an advisor for them and inclusivity and a, a, a reference point for the experience of my community. It's just so important to me because we deserve it. We deserve to be recognized and we deserve to be listened to. And I hopefully I can bring other people's voices to that table. Yes. And, and you, and you already have, and you will continue to do that. One last question before I let you go, you know, you've been in this industry for some time now, white leaders within this industry love to start conversations about inclusivity and diversity without often keeping the conversation going. Now, thanks to folks like yourself, like Lindsay Peoples-Wagner and Sandrine Charles launching the Black and Fashion Council and Aurora James starting the 15% pledge, Black leaders are forcing their white counterparts to be the change they wish to see in this industry. Part of your platform is lasting change. And I want to zero in on that operative word, lasting, because I think, and this is from my vantage point, we've become a culture that is keen to see immediate change because it's satisfying, but immediate change is not always lasting change. So I wanted to ask, what are some of the components for you that sort of lay the groundwork for lasting change, both in the fashion industry, but maybe even beyond it? I mean, my area of expertise is diversity and inclusion. And um, I'm often asked, what do you think brands need to do to enact change? And I would say it needs to be a commitment. It needs to be a promise that you're not doing it to look like you're making change, that you are doing it to implement change that lasts. And in order to do that, you need to go on a journey and you need to identify what you've done wrong how you can improve and listen and bring people in. And, you know, when L'Oreal asked me to work with them again, I couldn't really say no. Not that, I mean, like part of me did want to say no at the beginning. I was kind of like, oh, fuck you, because, you know, <laughs> <laughs> you put me through hell. But at the, same time, at the same time, when someone turns around and says, we want your help to do better, that would make me a hypocrite if I said no, in my head anyway, I was kind of, I think maybe I was in, within my rights, but, <laughs> but at the same time, I'm intrigued and impressed by people that can admit when they've done something wrong. I've done so many things wrong in my life and I would love people to give me a second chance, you know? So I think it's really important to give that second chance, but it's not an overnight thing. It takes time. And it needs to be built into the framework of what you do regularly at every single level, not just at the top, not just at the bottom or middle. It needs to be at every single level. So when it comes to lasting change, yeah, you, you need to be in it for the long haul. It needs to be a complete reevaluation of all of your processes because it impacts on everything, you know? Absolutely. Before I let you go real quick, Favorite Sarah Michelle Gellar performance? Oh God, it needs to be Buffy, doesn't it? Yeah. Although I know what you did last summer was epic. 
canonical. The fact that you were able to answer this so quickly just speaks to why I love you so much. <laughs> like, she's just ready. You're ready to go. You're like, I, let me name, let me give you two. I love that. But I don't know. Like, she had like a good four years. I think you yeah. posted the other day that she had a really solid four years of like Scream. I know what you did last summer. What was the other one? But there was Cruel Intentions. Cruel Intentions. Cruel Intentions. Cruel Intentions. Yeah. Okay, I take it back. Cruel Intentions. But Buffy, then Cruel Intentions, and I know what you did last summer. Yeah. I mean, there's just so many good roles. I want to thank you so much. I want to encourage people to check out your book once it's out. I want to encourage people to follow you on all social platforms, to read your work, to hear your work, to just imbue yourself with all of the goodness that is Monroe. I think that of the many things that I love about you, and actually the list is really long, I think that I love to see good things happening for good people and you are good people. And from the moment I met you before you were on this journey that you're on now towards becoming this household name, you were a good person then, you are a good person now, you have stayed true to yourself, your ego remains in check, but I also love that that you recognize the value that you bring to this world. It's just an honor to know you. I, I love you with all of my heart and I thank you so oh, much for doing this. Thank you so much, Evan. I feel exactly the same. I love what you're doing. It's been so amazing to see you grow. And like I said, what you do is slick. <laughs> it is curation at its best. Yeah, I, I love you, thank you. Shut up, Evan. Shut up, Evan. Shut up, Evan. <laughs> Shut Up, Evan is produced by Matt Storm, with associate production by Ryan Killian Krauss, and social media by Sean Ross. An extra special thank you to our Patreon supporters, without whom none of this would be possible. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.